This is a Sharp Old Hat podcast and my name is Chris. I had the privilege to talk to a man who wrote his own rags to riches to rags again story and has overcome a lot of adversity by facing up to his own defeats in life. As an author, public speaker and life coach, he runs his business and his life now with great success and is the most impressive and above all inspirational human being. This is a chat with Martin Oak McDonough. Um, you're living here for over eight years. Yes. And where are you from originally then? I'm Connemara originally. So oh, right. I'd be an Irish speaker. I'd be a girl gore. <laughs> yeah. This yeah. is funny. I had Breda Joyce on um, that was just published yesterday about the Irish language. Oh, had you? Yeah, yeah. she's from Rossmuck. Rossmuck, yeah, not a million miles away. I'm from Carrow actually, oh, which would yeah. be south, yeah. south Connemara, out the coast road through uh, Salt Hill, Spiddle. And yeah. Rossaville, where the ferry goes into the Iron Islands, yeah. would be the next stop, Carraro, yeah. I played soccer in Carraro. Did you? Um, uh, about 15 years ago okay. for Koshaga. Did you? Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was weird because everybody on the pitch spoke, spoke Irish, Irish, actually. Yeah. And there's me, like, you know, English being my second language. Like, yes. like, yeah, yeah. I was very yeah. funny, like, but... Um, and you ended up then in Canvara. How did that come about? Um, I asked you... Um, how long normally do you go with these podcasts? And you said sometimes they can go to an hour, an hour and a half. Well, if I was to tell you <laughs> my journey from birth to Indianapolis and Vera, we'd need maybe five podcasts at least, but I'll shorten it as best I can. Okay. <laughs> I was born and bred in, in Cairo. I was the eldest of uh, originally, there was five of us. Yeah. Um, my father died very young. He, he died at 37, mm. tumor on the brain. So uh, I tell this story in my book that I published about uh, just less than two years ago. Oh, my right. book is called Mind Over Mountains. Okay. My business now, which I will talk about later, I'm yeah. sure, is called Mind Over Mountains. I work as a, as a mindset life coach now. Yeah. That's what I've been doing for the last five stroke, nearly six years now. Yeah. And... Um, my father died, as I said, at 37. I was the eldest. My mother was pregnant with the fifth one of us. My father uh, died in June, and my youngest brother, Kieran was born in August. Um, so that was uh, kind of the early days, uh, brought up in Connemara and um, living there and uh, being brought up in the Irish language all around us, going to school, the pubs, the restaurants, the shops, everything. But uh, uh, strangely enough, actually, my mother is still hale and hearty. She's 87. But she actually spoke English to us at home. All right. And I've asked her a couple of times. We've had a lot of conversations about it since. And uh, her methodology around the whole thing was that we were immersed in the Irish language and she wanted us to be able to converse well in English. Yeah. So if you think back, I'm not going to give too much away about my age, but if it was the early 60s when I was when I was that young to, to kind of start speaking English to me at home. But uh, it's amazing, actually. Yeah. And um, I suppose like at a very early age, I had two languages yeah. and I learned French then as well. But I've, I've lost most of my French and uh, it's amazing. Like the Irish, I found... Um, 
I found being immersed in it is great, but when you move away from it, um, your 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 quick thinking uh, and responses asquelga wouldn't be as good uh, when you're not practicing it. It's practice. Mm-hmm. Like anything. Yeah, I suppose I you have the same yourself with German or languages you might have. I'm sure. Yeah, it mm. is. I mean, I, I my Italian was, for example, quite good, yeah. but um, I haven't practiced it now in okay. well over ten years. Like okay. you know, I'm sure it's yeah. faded as well. But yeah. I see that in my kids, like they're teenagers now mm-hmm. and their first language would have been German um, as I was the principal carer bringing them up and all this and they went okay. to national school in Berlin as well okay. and now English is their first language right. among themselves when they talk among themselves they actually okay. converse through English like Amazing, yeah. and yeah. their German gets a little bit shaky now right. at this yeah. point yeah. Well, certain phrases on mm-hmm. certain yeah. term mm-hmm. terms don't come to them yes. as easy as, as easy yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you you um you still have the Irish, you still kept the Irish alive there. Um, I do and I suppose the other part of it like is most people would know me by my Irish name, but like just for people who might be listening to this who wouldn't understand it, but I'm referred to as Martin Og, which is Martin Junior or young Martin. Yeah. My father Lord of Mercy was Martin as well. But Martin Og stuck with me in particular at home because uh, there was three Martin McDonalds in the village. <laughs> All right. So Martin Oak stuck with me and as life progressed for me and I built businesses and that and I have a kind of a, I suppose rags to riches to wherever I am no story mm. but um, um, when I had a lot of machinery and trucks and I had a lot of heavy machinery and a lot of trucks and I had a lot of people working for me for over 30 years but um, all my trucks and um, all my machinery carried just my own name and it was just Marching Oak and everybody knew me as Marching Oak yeah. so since all these grey hairs hairs that you can see now well you uh, have hair <laughs> and a nice head of hair it is like has a good head of hair alright unlike yeah. me yeah but uh, Martin August stuck a lot of people would not realise actually that my surname is McDonough yeah uh, they'd know, I'd be known as Martin Og, and like if you met someone from my hometown and said, "Oh, I was talking to Martin McDonough, he did a podcast with me," well, they'd probably say which one. <laughs> uh, and if you said Martin Og, and they'd say, "Oh, yeah, the yeah. fellow that used to have the machinery and the trucks," yeah. So, yeah. what I mean in small communities like names stick. Like yes. everybody calls the Eurospar in Kinvara Londis. Londis, yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah or true. Charlie yeah. Pickett's house across the road, That's like right. yeah, 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 yeah. lived there for yes. a couple yeah. of days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's funny, but um, um, the early day, I was really into sport as well, and I was lucky enough to play at the highest level, like the the the, uh, the national games here, the GA, and I was lucky enough to represent uh, the club at home and to represent my county at at that level. Now I played at a couple of different uh, levels where I played uh, under eighteen, under yeah. twenty one, junior, and I got up to that's the top football, level. Sorry. That's football, yeah, 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 in football. But I had um, a career-ending injury in nineteen eighty four, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I ruptured my ACL. Mm. Uh, nowadays, it's very common, and they have really perfected, or I suppose, as close to a hundred percent as you can get. And uh, uh, they've had huge success rates. But that time in the early eighties, like I didn't know two people who had yeah, yeah. the injury and come back from it successfully. Yeah. So I, they took out my cartilage the old-fashioned way, but I was still having problems a year, eighteen months later. And uh, they sent me then for an exploratory operation and they found that uh, my ACL was ruptured. Mm. Now, I will never forget the... the, um, the um, 
consultant I had, he said he was carry man, and uh, I went up after the the keyhole surgery a couple of days later for a consultation with him, and he just said to me, he said, uh, "What's your story, Mr. McDonough?" He said, and I looked at him. He was a big, huge carry man, hmm. and uh, he said, "Can you afford to be five months out of work?" He said, "I need to rebuild your knee; it's in shreds." And I looked at him and I said. No way, I said. I wouldn't yeah. be able to give that time. I was after starting my business the year before. Oh, yeah. and I was after getting married as well, actually, yeah. that year. So um, I said, no way. And he just bluntly, he said, um, your county career is finished. So he said, I don't think you'll even get away with club level. He said, your knee will be too unstable. And it was amazing. Like, it was, I refer to it now, it was a sledgehammer blow at the top of the head. And it felt like that because my world was built around, you know, my success at that level. And I'd become known and I was getting work through it and I was hugely involved yeah. all I could see was you know that sports and yeah. I knew I was good at it and I suppose not having a father as I was growing up and that yeah. to excel at something on my own was massive yeah. you know and to have that taken away from me just really shook me yeah. but I knew I had no choice and I said no and like before the consultation finished and he said if you don't let me rebuild your knee he said at some stage to have any quality of life he said you're going to have to take up one or two things and I turned around and I said what and he said cycling or swimming <laughs> and whichever one you take up he said you're going to have to do a lot of to build up that knee so it was amazing I started playing I kept playing with the club for a couple of years but I kept breaking down and it was leading to other problems I was having back issues and that and eventually it, it got so bad that I, I said I can't keep playing and keep injuring myself I had a, my business was thriving at the time and I was uh, missing days with injury and all that and I said look no but then I said like it's like everything I, like what I do now as a life coach I tell people you know when one door closes don't give up there's always another talent you haven't discovered so when I went to that place in those early days with the injury and dealing with that I said well hold on a minute I have an awful lot of experience here I was still very young, but I said, if I can turn what I've learned playing at those levels all the way up through my 16, 17, 18 to where I was when I got injured at 24, mm. I said, if I can help the club with this. So I started managing and training okay. the club teams at home and we did a lot of success for a couple of years. And then I put some of that into um, the underage levels at home. But then I actually started cycling and I, I, I began cycling really grew on me. I, I found I was able for the long distance cycling in particular and I felt it was something I could do on my own and of course it wasn't doing me any harm actually, it was doing me good, especially with my injuries and that. And I found I could suffer on the bike for long hours. So then a couple of years later the opportunity came up to cycle across America. <laughs> which was massive like now I saw it advertised and at the time like I, I went from zero to kind of doing some of the usual uh, sportifs we call them here where you'd sign up and maybe collect a bit of money for a charity or whatever and it might be cycle around the Carib for five or six hours or you know something like that down do the ring carry or something so I I'd started to do some of them and I was enjoying them and that and it was keeping me fit, relatively fit but the American one was massive. That was on the website I've seen it. You cycled with Sean Kelly, isn't That's it? That's right, yeah, yeah. Jesus. And since then, actually, well, Sean Kelly and myself are the best of friends, to be honest with you. And, and All right. Uh, yeah. But that means he, hardcore physical um, exercise and not just, as you said, like cycling around for a couple of miles for charity. That must have been um, uh, a gig that required an awful lot of preparation as well. Uh, in terms what is of just sheer physical.
the fitness for it, it it was huge like and uh, like I was lucky enough the preparation for it was massive like I trained hard for it for over a year and uh, it was the first time ever I'd been introduced, I suppose, to sports technology in that we were brought to Trinity College in Dublin, mm-hmm. where they tested us to see how what our VO2 max was, our lactate yeah. threshold. Yeah. And this was, you know, 1999, like there wasn't a lot of that going yeah, on at that stage. And to, to train in heart rate zones and that. But I learned and I could see my improvements. And they, do, they, they double checked us again eight, eight nine, nine months into our training regime and my results were off the charts compared to the beginning it was amazing actually but um, you're correct the, the endurance and spending time in the saddle and long hours it yeah. was it was tough alright but like it teaches you a lot about yourself and what you can put your body through and what your body can keep coming it's an amazing machine the human body it's unbelievable actually oh it is yeah. indeed but um, just just wondering um, mm-hmm. like you would have been used to pain anyway playing football at a very high level because I, I can relate to this uh, to the extent I played soccer at a relatively high level and I ruptured my ACL um, I would have been about 30 or 31 so but at that point I wasn't really playing seriously anymore like okay. I finished that up when the wall came down in 89 mm-hmm. and I was 19 mm-hmm. had other things to do okay. um, but it's um, like when you use serious sports like you know you obviously have naturally a very high pain threshold anything that's on the body when it comes to the head like a toothache an earache a headache that's a whole different ball game i find but any kind of other physical pain like an athlete is naturally well disposed to deal with at a very high rate Um, yeah that's correct and i think um I found myself in a diff- slightly different category. I, I, I agree with you totally, like that when you are playing sport of any types, especially if you are at a higher level, you're used to, you're used to challenging, you're to, used to coping with adversity through the sport, whether it's injury, losses, coming up against people who are better than you, whatever it is. But I think in, in my case and my situation and looking back at it now, like I, I was faced with, I suppose, I had two choices. I, I, I was going to do the reconstruction and rebuild my knee or else I was going to retire. But what I did is I kind of flipped it on its head. And I said, okay, that door is closed while it's really hurt and it took me a long time to come to terms with it. I began to look and see what other talents I had and where I could turn that into something positive. And I think it's true and it's what I preach about now that, you know, it doesn't matter how dire your circumstances are or whatever has happened, there is always another side. I call it like that there's always a grain, there's always a little seed of positivity there, of growth, and it's just to find that. And sometimes it takes time to find it. But like I knew that I still had the same strengths I always had, but that due to my injury, I would not be able to perform in that particular sport at that level. And okay, logically, people would say, well, if you can't rebuild your knee, like, you won't be able to do much more. But I didn't give in to that way of thinking. And like, even though that's in the 80s, I think that thread of mentality has kind of spread through my whole life. And I try to encourage people now. And it's funny, like, when you're in a situation like that, 
all you can see is the darkness of it. It's very hard for people to understand or to see or to take, to look for that seed of positivity and say, well, what do you mean? Like, what's the positivity here? My career is finished. Well, hold on, that door is not open anymore. But look left, look right, look behind you, look above you, look around you. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was still alive. Yeah. I, 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 my life wasn't threatened. Yeah. I had a, a career-ending injury, but... There was other things like I, I've been all over the world cycling my bike and in latter years we're probably going to get to it soon. I'm jumping back and forth. I've climbed some of the highest mountains in the world yeah. and I'm doing all, all that with a gammy knee. Yeah. And like the, that consultant was sending me questionnaires once every year because he was monitoring the guys that he had operated on and the guys he hadn't operated on. But the more I was doing... He was sending me two and three questionnaires every year. He couldn't believe what I was still able to do with the condition that my knee was in. You know, so it's, and I find like I go into schools now here, secondary schools in particular, and I might talk to leaving certs and, and transition years and that. But I try to, to to deliver that message in no uncertain terms that you know if something you love is taken away from you through no fault of your own within reason that not to give up on yourself and to try to find that that grain that that ingredient of and look to look within yourself like it built my resilience yeah. like yeah. no i had to deal with adversity but it built my resilience for bigger and far worse things that came at me down the line you know Absolutely. so and i i believe that that like i'm not a special person that was just born lucky to have that resilience or way of dealing with adversity. Everybody has it. But we choose to reach for the excuse yeah. too often. Sometimes I think it's maybe ego-driven. Sometimes it's, if I can curse on this thing, it's bloody laziness. <laughs> and it's, it's not looking to see other opportunities. It's maybe it's taken the easier, the softer way out. Um, the actor Michael Caine actually has a great motto that sums mm. up what you're describing. He mm. says, use the difficulty. Mm. Because it's not only about just one door closes and another one opens. Mm. It's actually finding joy and finding something to look forward to mm -hmm. in this new door. Mm -hmm. um, I would have had experiences with things I would have done for a while, like playing soccer, for mm -hmm. example. Eventually it came to an end where I couldn't mm -hmm. play at the level mm -hmm. I used to play at, and that was entirely my fault because I was partying too much, like mm -hmm. for many years. Okay. Um, but eventually, there comes a point, whether it's 30 or whether it's 40 or 45, you mm -hmm. can't do it anymore. And yes. you have to find, obviously, something else that you enjoy doing mm -hmm. because yeah. you can't harp on about, I used to be great when I was 20. Yeah. And no. that's, that's no way of living, like, no. and that's no way of enjoying mm -hmm. anything. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's just finding new focus like it is yeah and i like business wise i i, I have i've had the same trajectory really i yeah. suppose uh, it's like my father lord mercy him he had um he had a truck business where you know back in the 50s and his brothers were involved in their own they were very forward thinking men like especially i suppose the part of the country that we were in was yeah. Connemara, where it would have been on the edge of kind of the next stop america you know <laughs> yeah. where they speak the strange language back there <laughs> but but these guys like one of my uncles had uh, some of the biggest sailors on the west coast for a good while 
and um, my brother and two of his brothers would have been really into trucks and machinery and at that time just simple stuff bringing the turf home for people bringing seaweed to the factories you know bringing sand for construction work at the time and well, there were a lot less cars a lot less vans and lorries around so yeah, it in, been a thriving in, business in the beginning there was only two cars in the area and the family had one of them you yeah. know so there were that kind of people they went to the UK they worked on building sites and yeah. that they came back with some money that they'd save and they reinvested it in yeah. starting up small businesses but I suppose there was a natural trajectory for me to kind of I had heard about that I remember when my father died I was only eight but people fondly remembered him and spoke very much about him now my uncles were still involved and I started a, a, a business myself with a, with a truck and, and originally it was just an excavator but within um, within a very short space of time I mean eight or nine years I'd become a millionaire at that yeah. business I was really successful at it and some of the biggest jobs in Galway you now I was lucky enough to work on I had a great team of guys working for me I was careful how I picked them but I really had good guys working for me but like I would have worked on jobs like the Air Square Centre Galway Bay Hotel Jewelry's Hotel oh. where I would have done all the excavation on all those businesses so the, the, the my that company mushroomed very quickly for me but it was a real solid business I was really good at it and we used to get involved in most of the top jobs around the place and um, I, I had that business for over 30 years but in 2006 2005 2006 I set up another a second business that I thought one might complement the other where I started developing small projects um, small housing schemes and, and um, industrial units and that and I'd had a bit of success with that in the beginning when I say a bit it was a relatively kind of a new business and um, when the financial crisis hit us in 2008 2009 that particular company was really stretched because I had I was in the middle of an, an 8 million development I probably was 75% of the way through it mm. uh, but I had other parcels of land bought with um, potential but they hadn't gone through the planning stage which meant that I had bought them at uh, very high values yep. and within uh, the space of a couple of months the values of them in particular fell overnight now yeah, like, out I wasn't that. alone like but yeah. I took that I took the whole thing very badly you know looking back at it I suppose one of the biggest things that caught me really was that I had both businesses in one bank. <laughs> now I didn't originally because my mother, God bless her, she'd say never have all your eggs in the one hanky <laughs> but I didn't listen to her. Well of course I was approached a couple of times as well by banks like I was turning over an awful lot of money between the two businesses at the time, a lot of millions and they kept saying about margins and percentages and if I put both businesses in one bank I'd be down to 3%, 2.6%, 2.5%, 2.4% and it sounded really good now it made business sense at the time but when the pressure came on like I, I was no fool I still am not a fool but I was stretched in certain areas and having the two businesses in the one bank definitely did not help because when they couldn't get any equity out of one they targeted the other yeah and me I gave in in that I thought I'd solve it and yeah. thought I'd fix it but the hole was getting deeper now in the book I reference it uh, trying to um, put out a forest fire with a garden hole <laughs> yeah. so, but it put unfortunately like the, the, the downside to it really was it put my marriage under a lot of strain yeah. uh, we broke up we were, uh, we so were married for 26 years yeah. and uh, my family as well I was blamed a lot 
And uh, I thought I would have had a hundred friends. Um, I realized very quickly that I didn't. And it took a lot out of me. I lost my identity. I hated myself. I blamed myself totally. And it got to the stage where I couldn't even look in the mirror at myself. I Did just you suffer physically as well? Uh, a couple of years later, it's uh, a good question. Because with sleep deprivation, I would imagine, like, you know, this is an ongoing stressful situation, like, you know, after doing this for a year, two, three years, like, you know, you lose sleep, you eat too much, you eat unhealthy, you get fat, or, um, you know, you develop all sorts of ailments because of the stress you're under for quite a sustained period of time. Yeah, well, what caught me really was, and what the, the, the worst illness I got is I got shingles three times, <laughs> which is totally down to stress. Yeah. And um, I suppose seven, eight years later, I went uh, for um, a cardiac CT scan and they discovered that uh, I had uh, 96% blockages in two of my arteries, <laughs> but specifically down to stress. Yeah. Chronic stress yeah. is what I went through at the time, you know. But um, I could have had a few options. Uh, the main one was uh, I thought and I went to do it uh, on four different occasions was... Uh, I had moved into my sister's uh, converted garage. Uh, her seven and her husband were kind enough to offer it to me when I was in a bad place. And they were living near the sea, and I went down to the... I wasn't sleeping for weeks. Yeah. I went down to the sea four mornings to put an end to my misery. And But I don't know, something... I, I, I referenced it in the book, and I keep referencing the book, and I'm sorry about that. But no, that's cool. I, I referenced it as um, that there was th th there was something flickering inside me and it just I, I just couldn't do it yeah. I, I I had children I had grandchildren I'd I, I just pulled myself back a couple of times and eventually I went to a life coach myself and it turned my life around actually yeah I began to slowly slowly deal with where I was and what I was dealing with but um, as I said a couple of years later when I went for um, and it was just by chance I decided to go for a cardiac CT scan just to check myself out and they discovered I had the blockages because I had no ailments whatsoever. Yeah. But he said to me that, you know, my cholesterol was low enough, it was 4.6 or something, my blood pressure was good, a resting heartbeat of 50 or 51 and there was no signs. I wasn't overweight, my diet was good and everything else but um, my cardiologist maintained was totally down to chronic stress yeah. and he could, they, they refer to it now seemingly as the, the silent killer. Yeah, chronic stress. So um, I th those couple of years were were really difficult for me. I was in a bad place, and it took me a long, long time to lift that self blame, self doubt, and it, it, I spiraled. Uh, I didn't put on weight. I stopped drinking. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'd be fond of a pint, but I can leave it alone too. But yeah. I stopped drinking during that time. I, I just felt it wouldn't be the right road to go. So you felt actually in control of making those decisions. That wasn't when you said at your lowest point, like you were thinking about topping yourself. But mm -hmm. when like stopping drinking was a very kind of self-determined decision. This is what uh, I'm doing now. Yeah, that's a good question as well. You're asking me good questions. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm getting paid for. <laughs> um, that's a very good question. Yeah, it's funny looking back at it. There was uh, there was so much outside of my control, and that, I think that's the first thing people have to realize. If anyone is listening to this who might be struggling in different areas, you will feel helpless. 
Absolutely. And it, like my situation was colossal. It was unbelievable, actually. I went from being worth millions to yeah. being worth nothing. Yeah. And that didn't mean anything. And that wasn't what hurt the most. It was the loss of family. It was the loss of friends. And it was the loss and, I suppose, the rejection from people that I'd been really good to. And I thought helped hugely. Yeah. And that was impossible almost to deal with because all it did was turn me in on myself but before I went when I, I when I started working with the life coach my decision making be, became a bit clearer but when I made the decision not to drink and when I made the decision not to jump over that cliff a couple of mornings my life coach wasn't involved at the time mm -hmm. but looking back at it you're right that there was a mental strength there that I revisited I when somebody, there's one other person who asked me th that question the same way you've asked me now, and that was Pat Falvey, who's he summited Elv Everest twice, <laughs> and we had a lot of whiskey one night, and he got deep into asking me questions, and that was one of the questions. He said, what stopped you? And he said, how were you able to make those decisions? Well, and I felt I was able to go to a place where you don't want to go too often. Because when you have to go there, it's dire and it's not a good situation. But I found there was something in there and I, I couldn't even call it a name, but I know it's deep, deep within me where there's some sort of a fire or some sort of a strength that says, no, you should not do that now. Mm -hmm. This is the last thing you need to do. I don't know what you need to do, but you can't do that. And that stalling, that hesitation, and then you begin to question, where did that come from? My life is shit. I feel shit. Why is this thing forcing me not to give in? And it's amazing. I've been there a few times. Not that I want to go back there too often, but I know I've been there a few times. Yeah. But it is certainly, um, I, I, I haven't been in those situations mm -hmm. you're describing, and they're entirely your situations. Mm -hmm. um, but um, I find that... Um, if I face adversity, just taking every little bit of control, every little bit of decision-making power for myself, I will take that little bit and bit by bit, seeing mm -hmm. that I feel good when I can say, I called the shots here. In whatever minuscule way it may be, like, um, works for me and it may to some level because you were a very successful athlete like and you had to make decisions on the pitch you had to make decisions uh, building a business you make private decisions uh, so you're in control for most of what you do and you're used to that control so would i be and when you hit a bad spot, um, just regaining every little, clawing back every little bit of control you can have um, is obviously something that you would habitually do. And this is actually something I was thinking about when you were talking um, that you went into coaching then when your active playing career finished. Um, 
I tried that as well, but uh, I gave up after a couple of weeks because I was really just trying to hang on to the lads, the mm -hmm. atmosphere okay. around the club. And after a couple of weeks, I realized, look at, yeah, you're just looking for a substitute here. You want to be with the lads, you want to be involved in okay. the sport. And, mm -hmm. um, but I had no control and no aptitude for that coaching either like you know okay. so at least i only stuck with it for a couple of weeks but yeah okay yeah, yeah. but anyway sorry to interrupt you there no 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 it's fine but it's um like what i do now um like i uh, with clients and uh, i do a bit some public speaking as well i go into corporate co companies and that and i talk about adversity and building resilience and um, how that worked for me and I talk about which I'm I pride myself in being a mindset coach and I, I really believe in, in, in having a growth positive mindset and I think I'm a great example of it but I know now when I'm working with people who, who are facing difficulties in that and they, they don't know which way to turn or uh, what decisions to make like I realized during those times and more and more as I was going through it, that the only thing I actually had control over was my thoughts. Mm. And it's, it's such a humbling thing. And people would say, what the fuck do you mean, like, yeah. your thoughts? But, like, your thoughts around, like, that door is locked, you can't go out. Like, well, my thoughts would be, okay, where's the key? Yeah. Uh, is there a window open? How can I contact somebody who might be... Like, where you turn whatever sort of a negative is facing you, that you begin to step back, step over it, look down at it, see, okay, wh what can I do here? Rather than, it's, it's, I tell people, it's like flicking the switch. I'm, I'm coaching a lady at the moment for the last couple of months, and she said to me the last day, she gave me a beautiful compliment, actually. She said, you have an uncanny way, she said, uh, of putting complicated stuff about life in simple language and simple terms. And I think that's the magic mm -hmm. because life is not complicated, but we complicate the hell out of it yeah. ourselves. And like that positive mindset, like, and it can be difficult at times, depending on the situations. And believe me, I know more than most, yeah. but like where there's loss and there's death and there's yeah. some, it can be so difficult to look for and try to find that positivity in those situations. but. There's something in everything. Like I gave a talk in, in Limerick recently, a corporate event, and there was a guy sitting in the front. There was 14 of the minute, uh, management level. And he was one of these guys who had the arms folded and he just did not participate at all. So I opened it up after I do about an hour and a quarter, an hour and 20 minutes, and I opened it up for questions and answers and he muttered something. and. I said, sorry, I didn't hear you. And he said, you couldn't be too fucking proud of yourself. He said, he cursed. And he said it low now, but I said, I didn't hear you. And he raised his voice again. And I said, what's your name? And he said, John. And I said, I don't understand what you mean. He said, you couldn't be too fucking proud of yourself after making all those mistakes. And I looked at him and I repeated it to the rest of the room. And I said, I don't know about you, John. I said, but I never purposely made a mistake in my life. I said, I made decisions based on the information I had at the time. 
and based on where I was coming from. But I said, I didn't do it, I said, to make mistakes. No, I said, they turned out to be wrong decisions, some of them. And I said, some of them I paid dearly for, as did my family and others, and people I had working for me for 30 years. But I said, they were decisions, but you know what? I said, I turned them on their head. I learned so much. And I said, that's what you do, I said, when something goes wrong or you make a mistake, as you refer to it as. I said, I refer to it as making a decision. I said, it's a bit of a difference. And I said, some people never make decisions. I don't know where you are with that. You know, that's a good point. But I, 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 not most people, I said, put off making decisions. And I said, because of that, they live unhappily. They live in situations where nothing is right and everything is wrong. And they can be really difficult to live with. I said, I'm not saying that's you, John. But I said, I have experience of people like that. I coach people like that. And the rest of the room started clapping for me. But like, you know, I know that I made mistakes and I know that, you know, but I don't look at it like that. I made decisions. That turned out to be in retrospect exactly. mistakes, but you do not make a decision to make a no. mistake. That never happens for no. anyone. That, no. I don't true. know anyone who does. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, but you say you do um, talks and you do one-on-one sessions as mm-hmm. well. Like, mm-hmm. um, would you run the risk or the danger of, um, because you're a mentally very strong person mm-hmm. and you have grown up to be a strong, or you grew up to be a strong person from childhood on, like, mm-hmm. would you run the danger of, I don't know how to put it now, um, to, to dismiss people mm-hmm. who are not of the same mm-hmm. mental strength yeah. and constituency as yourself mm-hmm. how do you deal with that someone who has not that background of sports for example is a good it is yeah yeah and and th- again that's uh, that's a triple a question you're after asking me it's a really good one <laughs> <laughs> and i'm enjoying you asking me those questions uh that's very good actually because um when i was doing my life coaching course one of the areas where um I won't say I struggled with. One of the areas where it took me time to manage was when I was coaching people who were dealing with difficulties in areas where I'd be strong. But what I've learned and become really good at is it's not about me. It's about the person sitting in front of me. So whatever level they're at is where I have to be. Now, it's easy to say that. But as a coach, like I had a guy recently and he had done three sessions with me. And at the third session, two of them were on Zoom where we met for the third one. And he said to me, I thought you'd tell me what to do. (laughs) And I said, no, I said, coaching doesn't work that way. I said, I'm going to help you, I said, by asking you powerful questions. And I said, through that, I said, you'll find a way, I said, to deal what you need to deal with. I said, there may be times when, I, with your permission, I might offer something, but it would be a suggestion of maybe you might look. And I said, that'll be a last resort if I think you're really stuck. And that was the biggest learning I took from putting myself through the coaching course was marching. And they told me, they said, Martin, you have a huge amount of experience. Your strength of mind is off the charts. We think you'd be really good at what you do once you master this. And it was amazing. I can see now the difference when I started 
to the last couple of years as a coach. Yeah, you probably in the beginning battle your ego a little bit as well. Totally. Oh, totally. Yes. Yeah. How long actually did it take you to uh, from when you um, when your business failed and that you basically had to explore an alternative lifestyle as such um, to arrive at um, you know the point where you say life coaching? That's actually something I could do. That are we talking many years? Are we talking just a couple of months and then you slide into it because you had to do something anyway? Um, that's a very good question as well. 2008, 2009, everybody knows that that's when things kind of... As uh, I had a very high-level American coach who coached me about two and a half years ago. And um, he, like, he, it was funny, he went around the crash in a different way. He got me to talk about a global financial crisis. Mm. And I, I remember looking at him a couple of times on Zoom, and he said, it's not a Martin Og <laughs> crisis <laughs> caused by Martin Og. Yeah. It was a global financial crisis. And he got me to repeat it. And one of the most powerful things he got me to do was actually he got me to write a letter of apology to myself. Oh, okay. It took me three and a half hours to write it and I cried and That's cried after reading it. Yeah, it was, it was hugely empowering. Huh. I couldn't believe it actually. And I, he got me to email it to him, but I had to read it to myself first. I, I really get the idea. It's kind of yeah. a, a 3D mirror, if you yes. want. So yeah. we don't look at yeah. on the wall, you look behind the wall. For having been so hard on myself, yeah. plus other things. Yeah, yeah. It was amazing, actually. It was, it was empowering. But um, well, getting back to your question about, like, one of my sisters, who there's one in every family, like, I'm the eldest, but there's one in every family who the person that everyone is afraid of. Well, that happens to be one of my sisters, <laughs> called Angela, and she contacted me, suggested I go to a life coach, 2010. Okay. And uh, eventually I did. I didn't know what a life coach was. I didn't have a clue. Mm -hmm. I said, I'm not going to any fucking quack. Yeah. And whatever words to that effect anyway. There was a couple of curse words and whatever. And I don't yeah. curse. I don't, I've cursed more on this thing tonight than, <laughs> <laughs> than I have in a long time. Well, welcome well, to the there you go. podcast. Like. <laughs> but uh, she advised, she said, I've heard of this lady. And she said, I think she'll help you out. So I went and uh, seemingly I was going to this lady twice a week for 13 weeks. And I know now from dealing with clients myself that there comes a stage when you're coaching someone very early. If you think they have any um, suicide tendencies, you don't coach them. Yeah. Because you're not in that space. Yeah. You recommend a counselor or a therapist or some other scenario. So I've, I met that life coach a couple of years ago and I hadn't met her for a good while. And I said to her, knowing what I know now about uh, what I do as a coach. And when you come across a client who you think, ooh, this guy is borderline. She said, the first time you came to me, she said, our first session was nearly two hours. And she said, it was heavy. But she said, there was something in you. She said, I said, I'd take a chance on you till the next one. And she said, the next one, you were stronger than the first one. I made the decision. She said, I was going to work with you. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm amazed. And she said, sometimes you make a call. I said, that was a huge call. Oh, believe me, she said, I thought about it, she said. For <laughs> but she said, the second time and the third time, she said, you were just getting stronger and stronger. She said, I could see it. So she said, I wanted to work with you. And it's amazing. Like, I remember going to my GP before I went to 
that life coach and I asked my GP at the time I said I went in and I sat down I was waiting in the waiting room first and I went in and he was I don't know what he was doing he was writing something into a book or a diary or something and he looked up at me and I don't know how I looked but he said to me what the hell happened to you and I sat down in front of him and I begged him I said you'll have to give me something I said I'm not sleeping something I said that'll calm me down and he looked at me he said Marty he said I know you and he said, I'm not going to give you anything. He said, if I do, you're going to be on it for the rest of your life. And he said, I know, he said, that you're much stronger than that. He said, are you exercising? I said, no, I haven't done anything the last 14 months. And he looked at me and he shook his head. Will you get back walking at least, he said. And it was the best advice ever because he sat down and listened to me there for 20 minutes or so. The following week, I went to a life coach and another week and a twice a week and, that, and began to build. But I thought so much of the whole process and life coaching that I said to myself, I'm going to go back and do that at some stage. Mm. And I, I, I didn't qualify as a life coach until 2018. So there's, I don't know, if you look from 2010, I suppose, 2000 and, you know, it was a long time, really. So I, I didn't just, like, uh, the ego got me back into what I knew, which was transport. Yeah. Now, don't forget, I was coming from a very low place. Yeah. I'd lost confidence in myself. Yeah. Um, I wanted to hide from the world. Of course. Uh, there were so many doors that I was talking about one door earlier in this conversation. There was no doors. I was in a, I was in a round room looking for a way out, and it was concrete mass, and there was a concrete roof on it as well. And it was just sit in the corner there, man. Calm yourself down, see what happens. And I could eventually, when I started to rebuild myself, try to deal with some of the issues. Um, the outfall from what I've gone through, still dealing with a lot of the stuff, um, I began to do a little bit of work in the transport industry again. But I suppose you were broke as well. Totally. I would imagine so. Totally, yeah. You know, yeah, totally. And uh, totally, yeah. yeah, yeah. Not long was the identity gone, but um, the, the finances yeah. were non-existent. I struggled hugely, actually. As many people did in those days. Oh, of course. A financial crash like uh, that. I struggled hugely and it was, um, I can talk about it now, but for a long time I wasn't able, I'd break down and it's just, the pressure was unreal. Like, and it's, it's looking back at it nowadays, like I know that I learned loads. I know it was, you know, it was at the time, it was a really difficult time to go through it. But I know many people who didn't go through it. They took the other option and they're not here anymore. You know, I was lucky that whatever strength I had, I was lucky to get through it. Now, you know, as there are people who would be listening and they say, well, look, at he caused it himself, blah, blah, blah. No, I don't agree with that. I, uh, I, I had two big businesses. I had one very solid business where I had people working for me for over 30 years. My second business did not help the first business when push came to shove. And I coach a lot of businessmen now. And as an entrepreneur and as a business person or a manager, a CEO, somebody managing teams and whatever, you're not going to be good at every area. And there was areas where I was not strong. I was strong at getting work. I was strong at getting um, the finance in the stuff. I was okay. But when the millions are going up and up and up, I was, I reference it simply, <laughs> as there was areas in my business where I was letting water in. Yeah. And once the pressure comes on, they're the areas that are going to sink you. Yeah. 
And that's where I feel I have a huge advantage now when I work with business people, men and women, where they have another pair of eyes. Now they bring me on board normally where they'll be strong in certain areas, but there'll be other areas. And it could be their health and wellness, could be their family relationships or whatever. And we work together on that. But I feel as we're talking about their businesses, I can see where I was myself. And once they're willing to work with you, it means I can ask the hard questions. Yeah. And once you're, if somebody had asked me the hard questions that time, I would have dealt with them and I would have managed them differently. Yeah. So that when the pressure came, it wouldn't have been as great and it wouldn't have hurt as much. Yeah. And that's what I, I, I encourage people now is like, and, and, and it's not an easy thing for someone running a business. It's a real personal thing for a lot of people to bring somebody in at that level. Now, I don't ask questions about turnover. That's none of my business. But it's the areas where you as a business person or a manager or a CEO might not feel strong. Okay, let's talk about that. What could you do to change that? Could you delegate a bit more? Could you bring in some expertise? I want to spend a bit more time with my family. What would that look like? Mm. Simple stuff, but like it's just asking the questions and looking at it with a different pair of eyes, as I said. Could actually a 35-year-old be a life coach, in your opinion? And could a 35-year-old be receptive of the um, services of a life coach? Well, the second part is easier to answer, so I'll answer that one. Um, I have some young people that I've been coaching, and I have some people who are reaching out to me. Mm-hmm. And ironically, I, I see a big shift. When I wasn't on social media at all when I started this business five years ago. Now I have a big presence. I have seven or 8,000 followers on Instagram. I have oh. as many on Facebook, which is real old school now, but I do have solid followers mm-hmm. on it. And I have, I think I have four and a half thousand on LinkedIn. More right. And uh, while I wasn't doing that much on LinkedIn, I'm spending a lot more time on it now and I'm targeting it because I'm getting a different caliber of person. Mm. And the best explanation I can give about that is that for people who might not realize they're all social media platforms, but Facebook and Instagram I have a lot of followers, and if you and I went for a pint it, from here or Galway or Connemara or some other place, I guarantee you before the night is out, someone is by his pint, <laughs> and they'd come over and they say, oh, Martin, I love your stuff. It's so positive. Mm-hmm. But a lot of those people are never going to ask to be coached, and they're never going to spend any money with mm-hmm. me. And that's fine. But at the end of the day, I'm running a business. Mm-hmm. So I found that LinkedIn seems to be bringing me a professional person who wants to be better who wants to personally develop themselves, who wants to grow. And I'm finding from 30 to 60-year-olds with businesses or whatever are coming. But the first part of your question, that's a difficult one. Can a 35-year-old be a good coach? I think the answer is yes. But I think that person, just because... Okay, let's call this... Call a spade a spade here. Martino, life coach... Born in 1960. I still didn't tell them my age. They'll have to calculate that now. <laughs> listen to this. <laughs> That's um, uh, 47. Uh, yes. Um, let's call Mary, life coach, 35 years of age. Uh, looking, um, um, somebody approaches both of them who is 30 years of age yeah. or 35 years of age. There's me. And there's this Mary who's 35, 
30 odd years and the difference between us. Okay, my experience speaks for itself. But I think a young coach, if they work in certain areas with certain types of clients, will bring a lot of benefit to that person. There are parts of life now that I am not as au fait with as I would be with other parts. Yeah. So I think it's about finding your niche. I'm five years at this. I'm only beginning to find my niche now. And the thing about what I'm really learning is that with time and spending some time on it and coaching different people in different areas, you actually find where your ideal client is. And I think that's the secret sauce, that that 35-year-old girl may be better and stronger mm -hmm. with certain types of clients than me and vice versa. So if this person was trained, Mary, by the same person that trained me, the same people, we learned the same stuff. My experience leads me in other directions, but that's not to say that she could not be strong in her own areas. Your 25-year-old, if you had one, or 28 or whatever, may be struggling with certain areas in her life. May look at me as, oh, this is too much like talking to my dad. <laughs> or, or whatever. Precisely. So this 35-year-old, oh, hold on a minute, if you don't want to talk to him, there's Mary. No. And she did the same course as Marchie. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't mind talking to her. Uh, was she in college? Oh, yeah, she was. She did the same thing you're doing. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, I want to talk to her. So I think there is space for both. And then there would be. Um, I was just, when I think back at my, say, 30, 35-year-old self, like, you know, mm -hmm. I was just basically starting to, like, we had our first child, I was... 38 or 39, I think. Um, so uh, between 30 and 35, I was just starting out to comprehend life as an adult. Before mm -hmm. that, it was all a big party. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't have been receptive to any kind of coaching other mm -hmm. than um, someone throwing a ball at me and telling me to run. And um, so I was, I was trying to gain, or I was gaining experience professionally, but I needed to try and fail myself. I mm -hmm. couldn't be coached in any direction, okay. um, wouldn't have been willing to, just looking back on, on it now. And I think giving the coaching does require uh, quite a mature, at least a mature and appearance person. Mm -hmm. um, I would find it, say you're talking to, you've been stopped um, in your car by the guards mm -hmm. and you have a 30-year-old there and you have the 50-year-old there. Mm -hmm. Do you know who is more likely to be accommodating, de-escalating, or is more likely to rile you and then provoke a situation that nobody wants. Like, mm -hmm. And I think coaching, particularly in what you are doing, you do need to show a lot of life experience. And mm -hmm. people need to buy into this. Mm -hmm. It's not a 35-year-old coming here, someone who's been there, done that. Mm -hmm. I think that mm -hmm. has a lot to do with it. Mm -hmm. uh, I was, uh, I had a good conversation with a GP about this this time last year. I was away in Greece on, on a cycling trip. And um, I didn't know him, and he didn't know me. But he heard me talking one night at, at the meal, the first night I think we were there. And he came over to me afterwards. He said, uh, you're working as a mindset life coach. I said, I am, yeah. And he said, he asked me where I was working, I told him, where I was based in Galway and Canvara, and um, he said, it's a pity you're not closer to me. He was in the east side of the country, but he had a big practice where his father had built it up, five doctors, two nurses, 
a couple of secretaries. And he said to me, Martin, he said, we did a survey recently. He said, we have a really big practice. He said, uh, up to 80% of our patients, he said, that come in on a daily basis, he said, they don't need medical intervention, he said. They need the likes of you. And I said, is it that high? He said, yeah. He said, they need to talk about what's going on in their lives. And he said, they need to be listened to. And he said, we don't have the time or the expertise. I was blown away with this conversation. This is only this time last year. And he said, we can give them 15 minute slots. We charge them 65 euros, he said. <laughs> and at times we'll give them tablets and send them out the door. Now he had three or four pints and I had three or four pints. Yeah, yeah. But I quoted him and, and without his name and he had no problem with that. Yeah. He said, Martin, he said, the model is broken. And he said, there's so many people that are at that space. I coached a guy uh, six months ago, uh, a 20-year-old, tw- uh, 21-year-old, he's 21 now. Uh, he was feeling low. It's not an area where I get a lot of people from. But he called me because from my sporting background, he was following me, I think, on Facebook. Oh, he could relate then. He could relate. He liked my... Make the call. And he liked my posts and whatever. And I organized to meet him and a couple of sessions. And the first session, I said to him, I said, what else have you tried to do to get out of this space you're in? Oh, he said, I went to my GP. And I said, how did that work out? Ah, he said, it was a good while. I was waiting out in the waiting room. He said, it was busy. And when I went in, he said, ah, he could only talk to me for about 10 minutes. <laughs> and I said, and did he prescribe something? Oh, yeah, he said, uh, tablets. Well, yeah. And he named them. And, uh, and I said, well. And he said, well, I didn't take them. And I said, wow. <laughs> and I said, why not? Martin, he said, I don't need tablets, he said. I'm just a bit stuck, he said, where I am. I had one or two issues going on the last year. He said, a cousin of mine committed suicide. There was something else, a girlfriend broke up. There was something else and something else. And I just said, and we had a couple of sessions, and the man just changed like that. But how many people that slip through and take the medication and, like, that model of... uh, uh, I suppose our healthcare is mm. in bad shape. Mm. So, like, that, that I, that's why I really value, I, I go into a lot of schools now, and I value talking to the kids at that level where I talk about the highs and the lows and flying in helicopters and turning over millions and mm. playing football for Galway and cycling across America and whatever else. But then I talk about when it goes wrong. Mm. And I talk about the lows and I talk about dealing with it, but I encourage them to talk and I encourage them to reach out to someone. And if it's not a parent, a professional person, a friend to talk and that it doesn't matter how bad you think it is, it is never as bad as you think it is. And I do get a huge amount of response. And I think there needs to be more of that um, because I think like the ability that our youngsters have now is off the charts like. But I think the ability to deal with adversity is not being dealt with the way it should be dealt with. And I know we shouldn't be going too deep into that now, but it's no harm to touch on it, I think. While we're at it, I mean, Mm. um, how would you recommend, like being a mature person, how would you recommend um, a teenager, uh, 12, uh, 14 and 16 year old should actually learn to deal with adversity? Because you said there is the ability is lacking mm-hmm. and they're not being given the same equipment as our generation was in that sense. What would you recommend? Uh, well, I'd be honest about it. And I was in the book. Um, I, I think a lot of it comes down to parenting. Mm-hmm. 
And um, my mother, again, I'll quote her in her 80s, she maintains that parents in the last number of years, and I was one of them myself, that we did too much for our children, uh, that we overcompensated Absolutely. for them because we wanted them to have more than what we have, and whatever kind of excuses you want to come yeah. up with, we tried it all. Yeah. But what we're left with now is that, you know, in a lot of cases, they're not able to handle any challenges. They're not able to deal with any sort of adversity. And um, social media has become huge. Yeah. A lot of them are living their lives through social media. There's a lot of abuse in it. Um, the drugs culture has gone through the roof. So there's a lot of problems out there now. And I think uh, parenting has gone into overdrive and has been in a long time, whereas uh, kids are not being, young kids specifically, are not being left alone enough to try and work through their own issues and work through their own problems to see how they'll cope with stuff, to be there at arm's length as support in that, but a bit like what I do myself. I can see it where you get people sitting in front of you uh, or on the end of a phone or a Zoom or whatever, and the, 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 their, is, their issues, they think, are just unbelievably difficult. But it's offering support and listening and quizzing and asking questions and getting them to figure it out a bit themselves. That's why I love so much what I do, because it's about the person. And there's th- the biggest thrills I've ever got in my life are seeing people where they're, they, they, they turn on their own light bulbs. It's so empowering. It's unbelievable, actually. The energy I get out of somebody who doesn't see it, and I see it, but I can't say it. And I ask a question, you ask a question, because that's one thing you learn when you're doing it. You ask the right questions at the right time, and you're, it's like you're extracting bits all the time. And sometimes they'll move like snails and the next thing they'll jump like a rabbit or a hare and you'll say, wow. <laughs> and they'll say, oh, you know, and it's amazing to see that. But getting back to the children, I think like, and I don't know where that starts or ends, but like I see it at matches I go to now where parents are arguing with referees and they're getting stuck into other parents and they're giving out to kids. And it's, it's totally over the top. Like, oh, and, and it's that sport, never mind. Like, I know from going into schools now and I feel um, um, talking to headmasters or principals and they're telling me, Martin, like, we had two kids. Uh, sent down to the headmaster the last day. They were misbehaving inside in the class. Before those kids arrived in my room, a principal said to me, I had a call from two mothers. And I went, oh, my God. So, like, you know, these people who are listening to this, some of your parents, try to look at things differently because in the long run, are you doing that young person, that son or daughter, are you doing them any favours? to face life down the road. You know, that's what we should be asking ourselves. You know? I fully agree. I mean, we're doing, we're making the same mistakes with our two girls okay. to some degree. Like, um, at least I try to be aware of it and kind of rein myself in, mm-hmm. but we're driving them to um, the horse riding mm-hmm. in Athen, mm-hmm. right? The camogie and mm-hmm. the yes. soccer and the basketball yes. and the dancing. And sure. and it's, it's, it's just too much. And like our generation would have been um, not supervised mm-hmm. to a degree mm-hmm. obviously in Ireland in those days there mm-hmm. were loads of children so mm-hmm. there was no time mm-hmm. for that intense parenting mm-hmm. anyway because yes. there was 10 kids in the average family mm-hmm. and I would have grown up and was 
Berlin. Like um, I only have one sister, but um, basically left to my own devices. Like, okay. and uh, we kind of were brought up by the older kids from the neighborhood. Okay. Like, and yeah. that was fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I do not really get about this generation now, I, I mean, look, we probably would have played all the great games they have now with the modern technology and we would have been on Facebook, Instagram, mm-hmm. TikTok, whatever mm-hmm. else there is, like if it was available to us. So I'm not blaming anybody, but um, I know that I loved competition. Mm-hmm. My peers loved competition. When mm-hmm. we had um, whatever we had, we made it a competition. When we didn't have a ball, we played with um water bottle mm-hmm. and made a competition out of it and i see that um the kids here seem to be the the competitive edge seems to be taken out of their lives mm-hmm. to a large yes. degree okay. and mm-hmm. it's too it's a stupid word in that context but it's too understanding mm-hmm. the taken part is everything mm-hmm. bollocks it is yeah I, I agree with you there but there's one thing i i, I suppose from my perspective that I, I i revert back to that you mentioned there i, I know you made the, the point of you know you, you drive them to camogie and you bring them to horse riding and you bring them to wherever but like i, I encourage that because i think um it it definitely does um, young students and young teenagers a lot of good to be involved in sports and Absolutely. be involved in music and develop their talents in that, but it if it means bringing them in, but it's it's leaving them to develop themselves in. Like I've had kids come up saying to me that oh, I'd love to try this, but my parents keep pushing me to this, you know, and you're kind of saying, oh God, no, okay, I just meant to say we were right. doing too much. Okay, uh, I drive yes. you to football, I drive you mm-hmm. to basketball, yeah. I drive you to yeah. Camogie, mm-hmm. but eventually yeah. you have to stick with something. Yeah. But I know in my own case, like, that the biggest learnings I got, I went to boxing for a while in the winter time when there was no football, to learn discipline and to learn to take a punch in the mouth Mm. when the guy in front of you wanted to put you down. And I learned that while I was a good county footballer, some days there was some guy better than me. And that was a learning. I learned to sit in a dressing room having been beaten, lost finals. But that's uh, somebody hitting me... In a bad way on a pitch, and learning to deal with that without my father wasn't around. My mother hardly went to matches; she couldn't. She was too busy raising the rest of them. But like not having people running in and jumping and taking issues as well, it made me a better person dealing yeah. with that adversity from that type of sports or whatever that I was involved it's in. The competition, that, I'm exactly, to. and helped me in my business and helped me in a lot of ways down the line. And it's that learning that you get from of course being competitive and wanting to win and mm-hmm. having that drive to succeed but the other side of that and that huge learning is like your man said to me the mistakes and okay the losses you learn so much from losses that you won't learn from successes and it's about being better the next day it's about pre- preparing harder and it's about being at the training session half an hour before you need to be it's yeah. about having all your gear in your bag not to, waiting for your mother to do it yeah. or your father it's about having your bike ready to cycle to the local pitch regardless of and it's that learning about life that seems to be thrashed left out not important anymore and all those things are hugely important do you in your work actually go into sports clubs as well I haven't. Working with specific teams or athletes? 
it's something I'm really looking into, something I'd love to do. Of course, I did it at a time, uh, and I know that speaking to players I dealt with at the time who went on to become really good footballers themselves, they always admired my man management of them. And I think I, I spoke to someone about this yesterday who's, who's in Dublin and who knew me from my past and I haven't seen him in 15 years he said to me but he was surprised I wasn't involved at some level at sports but he said to me especially from what I do now but I can see now I was involved with a club here recently I won't name them but I'm not this year but it it was a massive introduction reintroduction for me again because I saw the way things have moved on but I'd have to say maybe not in a good way I found that a lot of players now are again being influenced by their parents. All right. And um, we're talking teenagers now, yeah. Talking, yeah, and maybe a bit older as well. Okay. And um, um, a lot of things have been let slip where the culture is, you know, you can rock up to training and you don't actually <laughs> have to be there before time. And then you can see, you can kind of say, if these people don't grow up as people like what are their own private lives like if this is the way they are like the culture to, and I can see where you the likes of me could do an awful lot of work uh, not from a tactical point of view or playing the sport but from a mindset point of view where it would flow into your whole life or I should probably say it differently start in your private life and your personal life and flow into the rest of your life, yeah. whether it's career, sports specifically. And like I read so many books. I'm just after finishing Dan Carter's book now who who talks hugely, one of the best out halves ever. Like, And he talks about coaching and eventually going to coaching and been talking about his issues, been talking about the expectations, been talking with dealing about last run and O'Gara as another guy I value highly. I saw Jack O'Connor, Kerry manager, the way he changed his own persona and then got the players involved in the same thing. I saw the same with Dublin. It's amazing the t the teams that are doing well and successful look after the players. Yeah but not only about the tactics and not only about what they're eating and drinking. Look after their minds. What do they need? Where are they struggling? Where are the pinch points? That's where you're going to get success and success and a drive. And it's, it's hugely interesting. It's very un underdeveloped in this country. But I think I can feel there's a wave coming because everybody wants to be different now. Yeah. And the, but the buy-in has to start at the very t it has to start with management yeah. and then it comes down from there. But that's for your natural progression then for totally. the business to look into yes. because of your experience and you haven't been mm -hmm. um, a player yourself. Like mm -hmm. I tell you, I did a bit of coaching because you, you said life coaching mm -hmm. um, two years ago, two summers mm -hmm. ago, um, because you mentioned the timekeeping and that mm -hmm. even yes. Prussian like drives me yes. mad in okay. this country. Yes. I'm here That's over right. 30 years yeah. and it's fucking insane. Yeah. So I had to drive this, um, a gang of kids going to the sailing course in Orne Moor during the summer, two summer holidays ago. Mm -hmm. um, so my parents took turns, who's driving them in, who's getting them out. Mm -hmm. So I think the sailing course started at 10 o'clock in Orne Moor. So I collected kid A, at 8.27 of 
was at 9.27, um, kid B at 9.29, and kid C at 9.33. And I just said, those are the times. And the first day I was arriving and I announced it to the parents, have them out. And I was there exactly at that particular time, <laughs> 27, 29, 33, or whatever it was. And the kids just thought it was a game. We're talking about younger kids, national mm -hmm. school kids. Um, the next day I mixed it up a little bit or whatever it was the turn for me again. Mm -hmm. And it was 28 and 31, mm -hmm. whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And the kids couldn't believe it. that's great. Okay. One time a little shit was late. I drove off. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and I came back there for yes. I just left him. I've seen him actually coming out of the house right. like but yes. the, the clock just changed again, yes. like you know. And I just drove off, okay. let him stew for a couple right. of minutes, okay. took okay. the turn in okay. Kindar and drove back. Okay. It worked and they're still yeah. talking about right. it. Okay. And now when I do any kind of school mm. runs or soccer mm -hmm. runs, mm -hmm. the kids know there's that right. mad fucker from right. Berlin. Yeah. And when he says nine twenty seven, <laughs> it is nine twenty seven. But I mean to just, uh, I meant to ask two more questions mm -hmm. um, with regards to your um, to your Vita as such. When you worked and you were a successful businessman, you did very, very well. After a while, you could see it's financially extremely successful. What gets you out of bed then? You said you started, you had one very successful company, and then you started more and with the development company. Why would you do more? Where's the motivation for that? Yeah, well, uh, it's the same thing that gets me out of bed now that got me out of bed then. It's um, the, the drive and the will to succeed in whatever I'm doing. It's what got me out of bed every morning cycling across America. It's what gets me out of bed now. Uh, I go to the gym three mornings a week. I Every other day I go out on a bike, my mountain bike, or I go down to the barn and do a hike or whatever. And the business at the time, I had started something that I had a passion for. Uh, I wanted to be successful at it. And I kept seeing opportunities. But opportunity is one thing, but putting yourself in a position to be able to avail of it and uh, to push through the difficulties and deal with the difficulties and I found that I was fairly good at that for a long time uh, particularly depending on which difficulties I was dealing with in that but as I said earlier hands up there was areas and there are areas where I'm not strong sure we all have that yeah and it's recognizing them and maybe plugging those gaps if you yeah. want um, but I still have that same uh, will for life and uh, drive uh, that I always had. I think it weaned, it flickered due to circumstances for a while and I, I, I was unsure and that's why I think I struggled so much within myself because I was someone who always could find my own answers. But in that particular situation or where I found myself at that particular time, I, I didn't have the answers and that hurt so much. And I got really frustrated with myself, and I think that's why I turned in on myself, and the self-blame yeah. came, and the, uh, the self-doubt, and the self-limiting beliefs, and whatever else you wanted. There was a whole garbage bag full of it. But yeah. I, I think through the coaching then, and through the help, and through focusing on what I could control was my thoughts, and trying to take positive grains out of everything. And then it came to, like it, it's hard to really explain it to someone listening to this now, but the, the best explanation I can give is 
when I realized that there was nothing I could do about so many things, and I mean just nothing. I, I'm looking over at a picture you here in the studio now with that guy sitting on three steps. It's Tim Armstrong of Rancid. That's it, it is. I see that now. And his head down in his arms. I sat so many days and so many nights and for so many hours like that guy is now yeah. with floods of tears pouring out of me. But it's, it's when you realize that that emptiness is all you have, that's when you have to go inside and say, there must be some way, there must be something. What? Where? And then it's the realization that you're actually breathing, man. It's bright outside. Calm down. You'll find an answer. You'll find an opportunity. And then, magically, one or two friends reached out to me, and that meant so much. Mm. Because the fact that I saw their name coming up on a phone, one of them hadn't contacted me in a couple of years, and the first thing he said to me was, I heard you're in the shit. And I said, yeah, I am. I'll meet you for coffee tomorrow morning. Now, those two men weren't psychologists or life coaches mm. or therapists or anything else, but they took the time out of their days. They weren't judgmental. They sat down and we talked about sport and we talked about the weather, as Irish people do. Or we talked about what, and then every so often in those conversations, they'd say, how are you feeling? I'm not great. Ah, oh, you'll be all right. You'll be all right. Sure, we'll have a we'll cup of tea next week yeah. again. See you Monday. Are you, are, you, are you out walking a bit? Are you back on the bike? Ah, no, I don't feel able for it. Next Monday, they do the same again next time. And that just meant so much. And to realize that I could smell the coffee and sit down and that I had two friends that cared meant so much at the time. And I was lucky enough when I did move into my sister's converted garage that she had three kids at the time and they loved me. And that was massive because when you're at a stage where you can't look in the mirror at yourself and you totally hate yourself and these kids thought I was God and they looked up to me so much and they were so excited every time they'd see me and I took so much out of that and slowly I don't know what it was just like it was it took a long time but I began to appreciate life in a totally different perspective altogether from where I had been and where I thought was the end the the realization that life is simple and you'll find some other way of getting through this and appreciate your life you still have talents you still have strengths and i know just to people listening to this they're saying couldn't be that simple but it is and it's realizing that and just being calm with yourself and stopping the blame and stopping the hurt and all of a sudden I was sleeping two hours and all of a sudden I was falling asleep in the chair and all of a sudden at five o'clock in the morning the summer was coming when I was walking down to the sea and I sit in a stone and I listen to the waves and before this they were inviting me to jump in but now I could hear the waves just kind of that sound they make over the pebbles and it was like it was cleansing and I could feel this and it was like it was massaging my body and the tears were coming but 
Yes. And when I was coming back up, it was more positive. Oh, that was a nice start to the day. I'll have a cup of tea now. Oh, I'm meeting one of the lads today. Oh, hold on. You've meeting with the bank. Okay. <laughs> there was always something. Yeah. There was always tin stones in both of my shoes. Yeah. But sometimes I try to take the shoes off and just walk on my bare feet and say, oh, what can you do? You can't do anything about it. Let them fire whatever they want at you. No. So... Would you actually, um, your 40-year-old self, you're in the midst of it, you couldn't have done anything about the global crash, but you meet that guy who, are you, who you are now. Um, how would you have fixed that guy or how would you have improved the quality of life of your 40-year-old in the middle of life with businesses, with family, with everything that's going on, how would you have approached to fix that 40-year-old? As a life coach? As a life coach, no. So your 40-year-old self comes to you. Yeah. It's Not necessarily about your own individual situation. There's always yeah, some very individual. Typical situation. A typical yeah. you, 40-year-old, comes mm -hmm. to you now. Um, I would have a conversation um, around where... Do you find yourself? A direct question. What's working? Uh, what's working well? What's not working so well? What areas would you like to improve on? What areas do you feel you're struggling in? Are you happy? What makes you happy? What areas are you really struggling in? And I'd wait for the answers. And depending on some of those answers, yeah. I'd ask more questions. Do you feel like you need help? Do you feel like you're able to accept help? Uh. Do you feel like you're strong enough to keep going the way you're going? Are you confident in every aspect of everything you're doing? Score yourself for me from zero to 10 on these five areas you've mentioned. How are you performing in all of them? If you got a bit of help, how would that look? Would it release some of the tension, the stress? Or do you think you can manage it on your own? Mm. I think I'd have that kind of a conversation. Yeah. You, you just answered what I was actually trying to get at um, because that 40-year-old, if I would have been the typical 40-year-old, it was said. There's nothing wrong with me. Now, come on, hurry up. Um, I have to go to the next meeting. You know, that is mm -hmm. probably getting someone actually to mm -hmm. not accept help. That's a strong term, you know. Mm -hmm. But um, take the whatever time it takes, half an hour, an hour, two hours, to actually assess and evaluate, is there actually something that's amiss in my life? And am I on some trajectory which is really unhealthy in the long run, yeah, the, I wouldn't have accepted at that age. No. And that's something very important for me to say now to, to, to the listeners or to a listener who might be listening to this and find themselves in a, um, a similar situation. Um, that like in, in the recent past, as, as in the last two months, I have, um, I have said to two potential clients that I didn't think I could coach them. Mm. 
that I didn't think, and it's one of the hardest things as a coach to do, to tell a potential client that you don't think you're the right person for them. But it was for that reason I had prolonged conversations because I don't give up quickly. I, I, I'll, I'll prolong a conversation specifically if, I, if I'm in doubt. I'll ask more questions. But in both cases, one male and one female, I did not think they were coachable from my perspective. And, um, and the reason I say that is that I didn't... It's not that I think or not that I thought I would not be helpful to them. Definitely I would have been. But I felt like they weren't open to be coached, like what you said about yourself if you were that 14, 40-year-old. But yet they touched base with me because some of what I post and talk about resonated with them. Mm. Because I talk in different ways about what I went through myself at times. Mm. And some of my posts are based on that, but fast forward yeah. 15 years. So it resonates with these people, but yet when I sit in front of them, whether it's on a Zoom call or one-on-one, uh, -on -one, and you start to ask questions, what comes, the ego comes in, and it's nearly like they look at you with disdain, like, who are you to ask me those questions? Or why would you? So you get people at 100 miles an hour, yeah. and I wouldn't be able to do that now, and they nearly start telling you what you can do, and I, you kind of say, whoa, you're not in that space that you're and it's not about me at all. It's about themselves. But like the the only person who you can coach successfully is someone who's able to roll up their own sleeves. And with your support, going to get stuck in to their life or the particular areas in their life that needs attention mm. from their perspective. Because when they're sitting in front of me, I don't know. And God knows, like it's amazing, you might start with two or three areas, but all of a sudden it becomes ten areas because one affects another and another and another. But I'd have to say that, like, I, I pride myself on, people will say, well, you stay really involved. Clients I have who've gone through, I, I've designed a couple of programs where they'll do it over a couple of months. There's different modules in it and stuff. And they'll say, they give me very good testimonials in that. And th they'll say to me, I never felt alone at any stage. Like, I, I want to develop that. And when that person decides to spend money with me and sit in front of me or whatever, work together, that they feel they have support. Now, I'd be the first person to give them a kick in the arse if I think they need it. <laughs> but we'll work through the difficulties in that because I want them to tell someone else, Jesus, I worked with Martin, he was really good. I felt I was really moved mountains. Now, of course, the first couple of weeks, yeah. you're going to get the, you know, the falling fruit or the low, sure. line low hanging, and low they'll hanging low hang, and they'll pick it up, and they'll yeah. they'll make changes. And if it's um, health and well-being, they might lose half a stone weight. They'll start walking. They'll do. They'll make little changes. But it's then when life starts to come at you, and you have this old mindset, and you have all these old paradigms, as the American calls it, way of doing things and beliefs about things. That's when it gets difficult, and yeah. that's when you need the support, and that's when the mindset is, ooh, it's going around the washing machine, doing 100 miles an hour, and it's not settling, and you're not sleeping, and the same thoughts that you had for the last 25 and a half yeah. years that you didn't come to a life coach are still there, yeah. yet they don't suit. Your values have changed so much now, and that's where I come in, and I say, oh, hold on a minute now. Tell me why you're thinking that. Where does that come from? Is that true? And you can see by the expressions, you can see, oh, God. 
I need to stop myself. Mm, yeah. But it's not a magical do 50 press-ups for the next six weeks and you'll be cured. It doesn't work. Well, that you way. get big arms from that. <laughs> <laughs> <That's it. laughs> you do. But it's, uh, would you say it's, it's um, kind of a summary of the results you deliver, not what you do, but the results you deliver is um, instilling, or to a large degree, instilling new habits and breaking with the old. Because, I mean, habits are really hard to overcome for all of us. Like, whatever we acquired along the way, getting rid of that shit is the hardest thing. And then acquiring new habits, we hope we do. We acquire sensible ones. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, and it is like the, the, the paradigms that I reference and beliefs and habits yeah. that, that we have. We have them for so many years. And, you know, like most human beings are lazy individuals. And yeah. we go for the easy option most of the time. Like... And to promote that mindset and that shift in people, like in, initially I struggled a little bit with my adventure side from the point of view that people who might consider working with me, they say, oh, God, I don't want to cycle across America or go to Mount Everest. Or So it was nearly off-putting for people. Yeah. But I'm saying, oh, hold on a minute. While I do that myself, what I'm promoting is just general health, well-being, that you actually take a little bit of time for yourself a couple of times a week to do whatever you like. Play music, bake cakes, write poems, do some artwork, go for a walk, go for a swim, that you actually stall what life for a while and that you get some sort of enjoyment out of some part of it for yourself for a couple of hours. That's what I encourage. And that's what I try to get people to look at. Not climbing big mountains. Now, if you want to do that, I'll help you do that as well. And if it's play sport locally or whatever it is, but that you're not consumed by stuff that is not helping you generally that it's okay to try and find this magical work-life balance. I don't like even the reference of it. But <laughs> try to find your balance, what works for you. Yeah. That's what I try to get people yeah. to do. And that people say, well, what would you... Uh, I, used to, uh, I used to play in a band 20 years ago. I haven't touched a musical instrument in 17 years. Why? Uh, I don't know, I suppose, well, yeah, I don't know, really, <laughs> yeah. you know, so it's kind of getting people, but then there's the other part of it as well, that when, do pe when people do work with me, I don't do one or two sessions, because it doesn't work, or three either. Yeah. I develop a plan, and I'll tell them, look, we're going to work together for the next couple of months. The accountability thing is huge. Yeah. And it's not a fear thing, but it's just, I'm accountable, we're accountable to each other. I'll show up, you show up. We're going to help each other here. When you come up with the little difficulties, I'm going to help you steer your way through it. And it's amazing. After a couple of weeks, they're actually beginning to face up to these challenges themselves and find ways, different ways of, of dealing with them. That's it. Actually, being accountable, feeling accountable is for many people a new habit, I would say. It is, of course. <laughs> because we're all trying to hide. Mm. But uh, just one last question. Mm -hmm. So medical science moved on. Uh, you can get your knee fixed now. Um, we can hook you up there in the lovely hospital. Would you play for Galway again? Mm. <laughs> no, well, that, they haven't won anything in no. how many years? Uh, well, it's not that long ago, no. There was a big barren period, already, but uh, no, I think the quality of life, my, my partner now, um, 
She is a retired nurse and she worked in orthopedics, but she tells me I am a 100% a candidate for knee replacement, but she said your quality of life is way too yeah. good. I'm only after coming back from Argentina. Uh, my son and myself, uh, we climbed uh, the highest mountain outside of the Himalayas. Right. It's the second highest of the seven summits at Concagua. And I can still do that. Um, I've done Kilimanjaro. I've been to Everest Base Camp. And I'm still riding my bike. But uh, I, the quality of life I have with that knee and what the amount of stuff I've been able to do is, I'm lucky. Uh, it's yeah. off the charts, you know. And I enjoy the high mountains since I came to the burn here about eight and a half years ago. It's yeah. across the road from us. Yeah, yeah. I love it. I do a lot of hiking. At times we go away and do the high mountains. Yeah. I'm lucky enough to be able to go to 7,000 meters. Yeah. I don't know, will we go higher? If Is that any with oxygen or without oxygen? Uh, we were without oxygen, but you're at your limit at 7,000 metres. Well, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. You, we were at our limits now. Four people died the month we were on the mountain. Ooh. And uh, it's just, that was a serious climb, that one. Um, Everest Base Camp was 5,600 metres. Kilimanjaro was 6,000. The last one was 7,000. So... I don't know, will we go higher if there's a couple of good sponsors listening to this program? They might reach out. If they don't want to be coached, they might put a few pounds sponsorship this way. But I'm lucky, and I'm very lucky that my son actually, that um, most fathers who I've spoken to recently, that we, we gave a couple of talks to mountain clubs and yeah. different things since we came back. Both of us were there, and another gentleman that was with us uh, who tried to summit this mountain about 18 years ago, and he wasn't successful. So it's a lovely story, but a lot of the then afterwards we'd have a beer and they'd say to me God, spending a month on the side of a mountain with your son, I wouldn't get as far as the airport would mind but, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm lucky that uh, I'm fit enough to do it and that we uh, both get on well enough to, to, to do it as well so it's, uh, it's nice, so I, there's that part of my life which I, I still love but uh, the life coaching, I'm building it uh, bit by bit, slowly, slowly and uh, I strongly believe in it yeah. I believe in what I do and I love what I do yeah. Well, that's excellent. You're very enthusiastic about it. And I would imagine that at this point, uh, your life coaching doesn't involve an awful lot of travel, as in stupid travel, um, 20 nights out of a month uh, in a hotel room. Uh, no, and I'm, I'm, um, I'm very particular with my time now. And yeah. like, I, I do definitely 100% practice what I preach. Yeah. Uh, in that I try to keep that balance for myself. I exercise a couple of days a week, a couple of hours, different days. I know I'm educated enough now, know enough about how things work sure. that I need time off. I need breaks within that exercise. But I can be driven to train for specific challenges. I know how to manage my body and that I've got really good at that. And I know that's an area where I can help a lot of people too in different ways. But uh, my following is, it's amazing. I have from very young to much older following me. Some people love my posts. Some people love the photographs. Some people love some of the reels. But I think targeting the LinkedIn audience is a bit more now. It's bringing me a bit more business. And um, it's a good mix and I, I enjoy it, to be honest with you. I feel like I can help a lot of people in a lot of different ways. And it's, 
it's a good place to be. Yeah, and all the uh, the LinkedIn, the Facebook, the Instagram handles, they can all be found on the website. Uh, they can indeed. Yeah, well, on Instagram, I'm the Mind Over Mountains. Um, Mind Over Mountains uh, is yeah. the website. The book is called Mind Over Mountains. That can it's, be purchased in the shop. It can on be the purchased. It can indeed. Yeah, and um, on um, on LinkedIn, I'm, I'm my own name, Martin Og McDonough. Well, I do, I did following there from my business years, and I yeah. kind of kept it alive. So um, Martin Og will find me on Facebook as well, actually. So I have quite a large following. So just on Instagram, there's the before the Mind Over Mountains. Yeah, yeah, or before and Mind Over Mountains. <laughs> yeah, and then Carroll is just Martin Og. Uh, it is Martin Og. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's no second name. There's no. There's no. no, no Martin Og. No. Then they know no. who they're no. talking about. Like. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, just before we do finish. Um, I I, I I think the main message I'd like to give uh, people, like if you're running an organization, be it a team or a team of sports people or a team of employees or if you're managing a business and if you think you'd benefit from having a chat with me first, let's have that chat. Yeah. And I don't force anybody to work with me and let's see where that goes. But you'd be amazed. I, I find people who come and we talk and they might decide the timing is not right, they might decide they can't afford it at the moment, whatever the case may be. But everybody gets a lot out of a conversation with me. And I hope people listening to this would have got something from our conversation as well. And the other thing I'd like to say is that it doesn't matter what you're going through, talking to someone is 50% of the weight lifted off your shoulder. I found that with my own difficulties. And I know that talking to a professional person is probably worth 75% more, you know, so it's, and don't be afraid, like uh, reaching out. It, it's a different way of looking at things. Uh, you don't have any trauma. It's not therapy you're going to, it's not a counsellor. It's somebody who's supportive, who's there to support you. Deal with the difficulties, whether it's a rucksack that's full of crap, of your life up till now that you want to lighten your load a little bit get rid of some of those old beliefs and those paradigms some of those habits that mightn't be too beneficial as you go forward and to have a refreshing look at what you're doing and the changes you want to make to ask those questions that are causing you a bit of doubt and that to help you push on so that'd be my final message yeah. Martin Oak at Mind Over Mountains you'll find me <laughs> <laughs> excellent well thank you very much Thank you.